thyroid hormone in your bloodstream. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. You're listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to make sense of media reports about research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness, this is where you'll hear all about that first, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and also trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. Welcome back, folks. This is the June 25th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Appreciate you listening in, as always. want to especially give a shout-out to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for your support. And we're going to start this show by a refreshing episode that took place since last week in which someone who I feel promulgates a lot of scams got their comeuppance on Capitol Hill. Uh, You may or may not be aware, I'm talking about the famous Dr. Oz. Now, this article caught my eye because he was scolded on at a hearing on Capitol Hill about weight loss scams. And the reason that caught my eye is in my private psychiatric practice, I have a lot of people ask me about this latest supplement or uh, remedy that Dr. Oz or someone he has as a guest on his show recommends to help with weight loss. And really, the inability to lose weight or the difficulty losing weight is a very, very common complaint. It's easily one of the most common complaints that I ever hear. Uh, And we get all kinds of messages all the time that we need to lose weight. There's too much obesity in the population. It causes a lot of health problems, all of which is true. But the things that Dr. Oz and his guests talk about on his show are not the way to go. And finally, after so many of these episodes, when Congress sat up and took notice, then you know something really uh, inappropriate is going on. So let's, without further ado, get to the article about what happened. It was under pressure from Congress that celebrity doctor Mehmet Oz offered to help, quote, drain the swamp, unquote, of unscrupulous marketers using his name to peddle so-called miracle pills and cure-alls to millions of Americans desperate to lose weight. So right off the bat, it sounds as if he's blaming other people for using his name and that he agrees that they're making unscrupulous claims taking advantage of millions of Americans who are desperate to lose weight. 
Now, Oz appeared for the Senate's Consumer Protection Panel and was scolded by Chairman Claire McCaskill for claims he made about weight loss age on his TV show, The Dr. Oz Show. He is a cardiothoracic surgeon by specialty. He acknowledged that his language about green coffee and other supplements has been, quote, flowery, unquote, and promised to publish a list of specific products he thinks can help America shed pounds and get healthy beyond eating less and moving more, which I have always expressed for many years is the best way and really only good way to lose weight. Sorry, folks, it's not glamorous. You can't buy it in a bottle. It isn't a quick fix, but eating less and moving more is the way to go if you want to lose weight. Nobody wants to hear that. It's not fashionable to say. It's not what people want to hear, but you talk about uh, the inconvenient truth. Well, never mind other things that phrase has been applied to. In my opinion, the very, very inconvenient truth is that losing weight entails eating less and moving more, period. Now, on his show, Dr. Oz never endorsed specific companies or brands, but more generally praised some health supplements as fat busters. McCaskill took Oz to task for a 2012 show in which he proclaimed that green coffee bean extract was a magic weight loss cure for every body type. McCaskill told him, I get that you do a lot of good on your show, but I don't get why you need to say this stuff because you know it's not true. Oz insisted he believes in the supplements he talks about on his show as short-term crutches and even has his family try them. I find that remarkable. He uses his own family members as guinea pigs and he'll admit that in a Senate hearing. Rather remarkable, I think. He said his job on the show is to be a cheerleader for his audience, one who offers hope even if that means looking to alternative healing traditions and any evidence that might support them. But Oz did agree that there's no long-term miracle pill out there without diet and exercise. That's exactly right, folks, because for all the testimonials that you see people giving about these supplements and swearing up and down that they lost a ton of weight using them, for the most part, these testimonials don't include that they were also doing a lot of diet and exercise. So guess what? That's why they were losing all the weight while they were on the supplement, not just because they were taking the supplement alone. Let's read on. Now, within weeks of Oz's comments about green coffee, which refers to the unroasted seeds or beans of coffee, a Florida-based operation began marketing a dietary supplement called Pure Green Coffee with claims that the chlorogenic acid found in the beans could help people lose 17 pounds and cut body fat by 16% in 22 weeks. The company, according to federal regulators, featured footage from the Dr. Oz show to sell its supplement. Oz has no association with the company 
and received no money from sales. Last month, the Federal Trade Commission sued the sellers behind Pure Green Coffee and accused them of making bogus claims and deceiving consumers. The weight loss industry is an area where consumers are particularly vulnerable to fraud. That was testified to by Mary Cable Engel, an associate director at the Federal Trade Commission, who testified at the Senate hearing. She said the Federal Trade Commission conducted a consumer survey in 2011 and found that more consumers were victims of fraudulent weight loss products than of any of the other specific frauds covered in the survey. Oz stressed during the hearing that he has never endorsed specific health supplements or received money from the sale of the supplements, nor has he allowed his image to be used in ads for supplements. I really think this is a very disingenuous statement. It may be accurate factually, but the very fact that he has these guests come on his show and tout these supplements, implicitly at least, he's giving his endorsement, is he not? Well, in any case, whether or not he's allowed his name and image to be used, uh, we've already cited the example of the Green Coffee Bean Company who used footage from his show to sell their supplement. He testified, if you see my name, face, or show in any type of ad, email, or other circumstance, it's illegal and not anything he's endorsed. He has not allowed his name to be associated with specific brands, he said, because of ethical concerns he has about doctors making endorsements of health products. It's incredible to me, uh, I'm shocked, that he gave this testimony in a Senate hearing uh, that he's claiming not to give endorsements, that he's claiming to have ethical concerns. Uh, I just think that... Uh, well, if that's the case, uh, they're either misplaced or they're not strong enough. Senator Richard Blumenthal asked him if he'd be willing to create a master list of brands that he feels work, instead of suggesting that a general supplement may work for weight loss, and then leaving consumers to poke around on the Internet in hopes of finding something. And his reply was, I've been actively looking at that with your suggestion and support, I think I'm going to do it, and I think it'll do a lot to drain the swamp that we've created around this area. Unquote. Well, at least with that statement, uh, he said, drain the swamp we've created around this area. At least maybe by that statement, he acknowledges uh, that whatever swamp has to be drained, he played a role in creating that swamp because he does have people come on his show, and endorse weight loss supplements. And it didn't stop just at the green coffee beans. Uh, he also had people come on his show and tout the weight loss benefits of raspberry ketones. And most recently, Garcinia Cambogia. Well, guess what, folks? Those two have absolutely no proven benefit for weight loss whatsoever. And yet all three, the Garcinia Cambogia, the raspberry ketones, the green coffee beans, 
They're all over drugstore shelves now. Food supplement uh, sections of the pharmacy departments of drugstores and and, depart- and uh, grocery stores all over the place. So his misplaced, inappropriate, and unethical endorsements, and I say all those things because these things have no proven benefit, have already resulted in a lot of these products being sold to the unsuspecting general public, which is a waste of their money. I don't really understand uh, why the Senate hearing was held if they did not intend to really hold Dr. Oz's feet to the fire uh, about his behavior and his playing a role. Instead, allowing him to say, yes, I agree with you, we have to do something about this, uh, as opposed to really scrutinizing his own unethical behavior. All right, well, we're going to take a commercial break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like membership are you an ihc member access to the institute for healthcare consumerism's breaking news industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook. A free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. FollowSniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. FollowSniffles.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com. 
the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you here. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. Now, before the break, we talked about Dr. Oz being called up to a Senate hearing and being scolded about touting bogus weight loss supplements on his show. This next article we're going to talk about actually has to do with something that may work. And it's being subjected to legitimate scientific scrutiny. It is a long way from being uh, brought to the market and uh, being used um, as a treatment. And it is not a dietary supplement and will not be sold in health food stores or pharmacies. This is under consideration by the FDA, and it is a medical device. It is an appetite-curbing implant for the severely obese. Let's learn about what this is and how it's working. A new implant designed to curb the appetite by electrically stimulating stomach nerves is under review by a key advisory committee of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The device is aimed at severely obese adults who have failed to slim down using traditional methods but don't want or can't have weight loss surgery. The manufacturer is Enteromedics Incorporated. And in the United States, more than one-third of adults are obese, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. This increases their risk of serious health issues, such as heart disease, diabetes, depression, and cancer. Despite this, we have very few tools at our disposal compared with other chronic diseases. The Maestro Rechargeable System, as it's called, sends electrical signals to nerves around the stomach that help control digestion. These signals block the nerves, decreasing hunger pangs and making the person feel full. In clinical trials, obese people with a maestro implant lost an average of 8.5% more weight than others who received a fake implant. The maestro rechargeable system is touted as a safe and effective treatment option for obese individuals who have failed more conservative weight reduction interventions, such as diet and exercise and medication, but are not able or willing to undergo more aggressive bariatric surgery options. The Maestro itself consists of a pulse generator surgically implanted under the skin of the chest wall. This delivers high-frequency electrical pulses to leads laid along two trunks of the vagus nerve, which helps control the function of many organs in the abdomen. Now, lest you think this device is some bizarre instrument of torture that has no hope of working, let me tell you that the principle behind this device is working already in two other devices 
that are implanted in many, many patients and have been working for many years. These, a device that's very similar, which uh, has a pulse generator that is inserted surgically under the skin of the chest wall with the leads wrapped around different parts of the vagus nerve to stimulate it, are in use to treat severe intractable epilepsy and also to treat severe chronic treatment-resistant depression when a patient has failed trials of multiple antidepressant medications. In those cases, they are the leads are also wrapped around different trunks of the vagus nerve, but instead of stimulating the part of the vagus nerve that controls the stomach, in these cases, the stimulation goes up the vagus nerve into the part of the brain where the vagus nerve originates. And therefore, the electrical impulses go into the brain in order to either prevent seizures or relieve depression. So devices like this have already been in use, already found to be effective for both seizures and depression, and most importantly for the makers of this particular device, those have obviously already passed muster with the FDA. Since the technology is quite similar, their chances of getting the FDA to approve it, I think, are excellent because they've already approved the same technology twice. The only difference here is that their task is to document to the FDA that it has the desired effect helping people lose weight without unnecessary or unreasonable adverse side effects. Now, the device is intended for use in people with a body mass index of at least 40, which is considered extremely obese. Body mass index, or BMI, is a measurement of body fat based on height and weight. Enterometics said the maestro also could be used in people with a BMI of at least 35 who have health problems related to their obesity and have failed to lose weight through other programs. A BMI of 30 is considered the threshold for obesity. In other words, above 30 is considered obese already. Now, the FDA's advisory committee's review will include results from a clinical trial that involved more than 200 severely obese people in the United States and Australia. Of those, 157 received a maestro implant and 76 received a fake implant. All of the participants then went through a standard weight management program, which consisted primarily of 15-minute counseling sessions. The program did not include more intense interventions, such as very low-calorie diets, mandatory exercise programs, or portion-controlled meals. Over the course of a year, study participants with the Maestro implant lost just over 24% of their excess weight on average, compared with nearly 16% of excess weight loss for people who received fake implants. More than half the participants 
lost at least one-fifth of their excess weight, and 38% lost at least one-quarter of their excess weight. Enteromedics added that people with fake implants regained about 40% of the weight they had lost within six months of the trial's end, while the people with the Maestro device appeared to sustain their weight loss. That's huge in documenting efficacy of the Maestro implant. So you see, they all had the same standard weight management program, including counseling, uh, but <clears throat> not with more intense interventions, such as low-calorie diets, mandatory exercise, or portion-controlled meals. Uh, so you might say on that account, well, look, you know, even the people with the sham or the fake implant lost weight. But the thing is, as soon uh, as the trial was over, uh, they gained it back um, within six months. And um, the people who had the real device kept their weight off. So, you know, I think that is good evidence that the device works. As far as safety issues, it appears to largely be safe with only about 4% of patients suffering a health problem because of the implant. Now, there is going to be a major difference from the same technology being used to treat either seizures or depression for the simple reason that in, that, in those two cases, the trunk of the vagus nerve that they wrap the electrodes around is different. Uh, in that case, it's a trunk of the vagus going up toward the brain, and there are going to be different effects and different side effects. A common effect of the vagal nerve stimulator, whether it's to treat epilepsy or to treat depression, uh, with the stimulus going up the vagus nerve into the brain, is hoarseness of the voice. It affects the part of the vagus nerve that uh, affects the vocal uh, mechanism. So we don't really know what the different effects are when you put the electrodes on a trunk of the vagus that instead goes to the stomach. Uh, but regardless, there are so many severely obese people and they face shortened lifespans due to severe medical problems and multiple complications like diabetes and heart disease and stroke. Uh, and these are people who, for one reason or another, don't respond to diets or medications. They now have at least some other option, uh, absent uh, the more invasive procedures of bariatric surgery. Uh, bariatric surgeries, even if someone chooses a lap band or sleeve as opposed to the full gastric bypass, these are not benign procedures, and there may be very, very serious complications. Uh, so it is very good, I think, that there is this other option. Well, you know, obviously, uh, the final recommendation from the advisory panel uh, is something we await, and then once they make their recommendation, the entire FDA will uh, decide what to do from there. Uh, so it's possible this device may be on the market soon, 
and the first patients will be getting the implant, uh, who knows, perhaps before the end of the year, perhaps by the beginning of next year. All right, well, again, at least this is something that is being studied scientifically, and it's been put before the Food and Drug Administration for scrutiny to make sure it's effective and safe. That is not something you could say about any of the supplements that are touted by experts who are guests on the Dr. Oz show. All right, time for another commercial break. When we come back, we'll have another story having to do with the FDA and mental health and more mental health-related news beyond that as well. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. I'll be right back after this break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that snoring can lead to chronic health problems? Snoring can be a sign of sleep apnea. Snoring is simply noisy breathing that can disturb those around you. However, sleep apnea is a serious condition that leads to a decrease in oxygen in the blood. The brain and the heart are two organs that depend on oxygen to function well. Studies have shown that a lack of oxygen at night leads to weight gain, problems with memory and concentration, depression, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, and stroke. There are several ways to decrease snoring. For example, lose weight if you are overweight. Avoid alcohol at least three to four hours before bedtime. Stop smoking. Control nasal allergies to things such as dust and mold. And avoid eating dairy products such as milk and cheese. If you think you have sleep apnea, you should see a doctor to be evaluated. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist, giving you all the latest mental health related news. Next up on tonight's show, antidepressant warnings tied to suicide attempts in youths. The news that the warnings the FDA put on all antidepressant medications that when given to children and adolescents, they may increase the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior, uh, that those warnings actually decrease the rates of prescribing of antidepressants to children and adolescents and increase the incidence of suicides in that population. This is not news. 
Uh, I've talked about that on my show for years. Uh, other studies have been published which brought this to light, and that's why I've been talking about it. A new study came along that was uh, published about it, and this time it actually made some national news. Um, it was discussed uh, on NPR the latter part of last week, and I'm really hoping that now that this information is being replicated in other studies and it's getting more national attention, I'm hoping the FDA would see their way clear to retracting or at least modifying that warning. Uh, but unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case based on their reaction to the study, as you'll hear in a few moments. So the article uh, is about a move by United States health officials to warn the public of an increased risk of suicidal thoughts among young people taking antidepressants. It was actually associated with an increase in suicide attempts, according to a new study. It could be that doctors avoided prescribing those medications after media reports of the warnings, and then children and teens with depression therefore went untreated. This is suggested by researchers in the article in the medical journal BMJ, British Medical Journal. The study's senior author is from the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute in Boston, Stephen Sumerai. He said, in this case, we think we're seeing the decreased use of the medication in kids who had appropriate use of the medications. Between 2003 and 2004, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, issued warnings that antidepressants were tied to an increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in about 1% of children and, and, and teens. The agency required the warning to be printed on antidepressant drug labels in October of 2004. The warnings were expanded to include young adults in 2007. About 7% of Americans have depression, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Previous studies have found that antidepressant use fell after the warnings were issued, but that use of other treatments for depression, such as therapy, did not increase there was also a decline in the number of people being diagnosed with depression. The implication being that because of the warning, doctors were loath to diagnose depression because that meant they would have to treat it, and that meant they would have to be at risk of giving patients something that may cause them to actually commit suicide. It also might have been that uh, patients' parents were loath to agree to have their kids be on these medications because of their purported side effects. To look at how suicidal behavior might have been affected, the researchers analyzed data from 11 healthcare organizations that provide care to about 10 million people in 12 states. They found that antidepressant use decreased by 31% among adolescents, about 24% among young adults, 
and about 15% among adults after the warnings were issued. At the same time, there were increases in the number of adolescents and young adults receiving medical attention for overdosing on psychiatric medicines, which the authors say is an accurate way to measure suicide attempts. Those poisonings increased by about 22% among adolescents and about 34% among young adults after the warnings. That translates into two additional poisonings per 100,000 adolescents and four more poisonings per 100,000 young adults. There was no change in poisoning among adults. There was also no change in completed suicides. The study may not have been large enough to detect an increase because completed suicides are relatively rare. It should also be mentioned that the data the FDA looked at in order to come up with the idea of putting these warnings on the labels of antidepressant medications included exactly zero suicides. That's right, not a single suicide happened, and yet because of increased thinking and behavior, which was found by previous research but not confirmed by subsequent research, the FDA chose to put those warnings on the drugs and that the warning itself then resulted in an increase in suicidal behavior and decreased treatment, decreased diagnosis and treatment both of depression. The study suggests that the warning had the intended effect of reducing antidepressant prescribing for young people, but it remains an open question of whether the warnings were beneficial or not, according to one expert. Now, a press officer for the FDA responded to this article that, quote, nothing indicates a need for change in the boxed warning on these drugs, which urges attention to patients starting treatment with the which the FDA feels is still good advice. The FDA has not tried to discourage use of antidepressant drugs in people who may benefit from them, and the current labeling and patient medication guides remind physicians and caregivers of the monitoring that is needed for patients taking these medications. It added that the agency has tried to balance the suicidality warning language with a reminder that depression is a serious illness that itself is the major risk factor for suicidal thoughts and actions. Dr. Sumeris said, I think it is incumbent that we all have to, do, have to do a better job at gauging the risks and benefits of these medications. So already the FDA is saying, look, we did our job. We put the warning on there, but we balanced it with a warning that untreated depression also can lead to suicide. So that's all well and good. They can point to the fact that they did their job and did it according to what they think are appropriate standards. However, the fact remains the unintended consequences of the warning they put on the drugs are that 
Doctors shied away from prescribing them. Patients and families shied away from taking them. And the rates of depression and suicide in the population in question, that being children and adolescents, which had been declining for the 10 years prior to that warning, increased subsequent to the warning being put on those drugs. Uh, you know, of course, there's no way to, to say that the facts fit one opinion or another, uh, but the evidence certainly appears quite damning that the warning did more harm than good. Next up on tonight's show, another hot topic lately is gun violence among the mentally ill and controversies due to massacres and mass murders and mass shootings being committed by those with mental illness as to managing the Second Amendment rights of this population. How do we keep firearms out of the hands of the dangerous mentally ill? How do we even determine who they are, much less try to do that in a constitutional way? Well, <clears throat> this article that we're going to talk about now is about doctors being uncomfortable judging patients' competency to carry guns. And when I first saw this article, even just reading the title of the article, it should not and cannot be up to physicians to make this determination, even psychiatrists. But let's get started with the article, and I'll flesh out what I mean by that later. There are some United States jurisdictions which are now requiring a doctor's okay for people to carry a concealed gun. But a new survey suggests many doctors aren't comfortable with that role. The survey of 222 North Carolina doctors found that 21% had been asked in the past year to sign competency permits for patients to carry a concealed weapon. By signing, the doctor attests to the patient's mental and physical ability to safely and competently carry a firearm. The problem, experts say, is that there are no standard definitions of physical or mental competence, and doctors have been left to make those calls on their own. There are no guidelines on this. Furthermore, competency per se, whether it's to carry a firearm or to make informed medical decisions about treatment, such as refusing treatment, these decisions are not made by physicians, including not by psychiatrists. Competency is a judicial determination, not a medical determination. That is, the decision is made by a judge. Is an elderly person with dementia competent to handle their financial and medical decisions? This determination is not made by physicians. Physicians do an assessment of the patient and they provide information to a judge, but ultimately it is the judge who makes that determination. Well, doctors are unsure how to handle these requests and they're looking for some guidance in the medical literature and there is none. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break now. When we come back, 
We'll continue our discussion of this survey of doctors and its implications, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Solution Providers, are you aware of the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's multiple marketing platforms? You're invited to get a little closer to IHC with our Solution Provider Membership Marketing Program. Through IHC's exclusive Solution Provider Membership, your business gets an all-access pass to engaging your prospects. This membership embeds your business within the Institute, which immediately aligns your company, its solutions, and your key executives with the nationally credible IHC brand and shows your support of the healthcare consumerism movement as a market-wide solution. And that's just the beginning. Contact IHC's Managing Director, Brent Macy, today at bmacy at the IHCC.com. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that wellness and prevention is the key to living a long and healthy life? For example... Common diseases such as acid reflux, high cholesterol, non-insulin-dependent diabetes, and high blood pressure, in some cases, are caused by poor nutrition. Scientific studies suggest the use of nutritional supplements, a healthy diet, and exercise can control and, in some cases, prevent disease. Use nutritional supplements that are formulated using good manufacturer practice standards. And remember to let your doctor know what you are taking, since it can react with prescription medication. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. The topic is doctors being uncomfortable being asked to judge patients' competency to carry guns. Now, this survey of doctors about this issue was reported in the June 19 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Researchers sent surveys to 600 primary care doctors and psychiatrists in North Carolina. They got responses from 222. Overall, 59% said they doubted their ability to judge whether a patient was physically fit to carry a gun safely, and 47% doubted they could judge a patient's mental fitness. A full 84% said those judgment calls should be made by professionals specifically trained to do so. Yet, of the doctors who'd gotten requests to do competency evaluations, 79% had signed off on them, the study found. This was surprising and worrisome, according to the researchers. Patients given the approval may well have been competent, but the concern is that doctors have no standards to go by. 
This connects to a broader issue. Exactly what is the clinician's role in people's Second Amendment rights? A doctor can judge whether a patient has any physical health condition, but how do they judge whether a physical infirmity prevents the safe handling of a gun? And judging mental competency gets even trickier. It's notoriously difficult for even trained psychiatrists to predict whether an individual with mental health problems poses a danger to others. A primary care doctor shouldn't be asked to opine on who's going to become violent. Guidelines, including standard definitions of mental and physical competence, are needed. But just who would formulate these guidelines is unclear. The American Medical Association and American College of Physicians, two national groups representing doctors, declined to comment on the survey. There are also issues beyond technical definitions of competency. In the survey, 59% of doctors worried that refusing to sign off on a request would cause problems in the doctor-patient relationship. I can think of a somewhat analogous example in my practice. I once had a patient fire me uh, when I told her and her family I didn't think it was safe for her to drive anymore uh, because of her declining memory and her advancing dementia. Some doctors may worry about legal problems, too. If, for example, someone deemed competent kills or injures another person, could the doctor be held liable? Of course they could. If the doctor said in the first place, this person is competent and fit physically and mentally to carry a gun, and then they commit a crime with it, of course someone's going to come back to the doctor who certified them as competent. That's a no-brainer, in my opinion. Well, it's good that some attention is being paid to this, uh, and I agree with the researchers who were concerned that, um, what, about 80% almost had signed off on these competency evaluations, uh, yet the majority are uncomfortable with them. I think doctors need to stop doing these things. They need to turn down these requests and instead... Standard guidelines need to be developed, but it also needs to be cleared that any other type of competency is a legal issue, not a medical issue. Yes, medical information based on medical and psychiatric and neurological and other examinations is used in weighing these competency decisions, but ultimately the decision is made judicially, not medically. Uh, and therefore, uh, this uh, issue of competency to carry a firearm should be treated the same way. Next up on tonight's show, smokers' brains just don't see the reward in quitting. It's a question that many non-smokers constantly ask. Why do smokers continue to smoke knowing that it's not only harmful, but that they're also wasting their money? Why is it so difficult for smokers to get themselves to quit? Well, a new study from Penn State University may have found why it's harder for some people to quit. It essentially comes down 
to their brain's chemistry and willpower. Potential sources of reinforcement for giving up smoking, for example, the prospect of saving money or improving health, may hold less value for some individuals and accordingly have less impact on their behavior. Categorized in a gray area between a disease and a behavioral condition, addiction affects the brain in complex ways. People who smoke or take virtually any drug allow that drug to tap into their brain's reward system, thus facilitating the release of dopamine and serotonin, the molecules responsible for feeling good and subsequently bringing a drug user back for more. This is evident in smokers who are most in need of a pull from their cigarettes whenever they're sad, distressed, or angry, and say that it makes them feel more calm and relaxed. But it turns out that these may be the only times these smokers are able to have such activity in their brain's reward systems. Researchers found that smokers who showed less activity in these areas were unable to intrinsically produce such high quantities of the reward molecules. So, when given the opportunity to abstain from smoking a cigarette in return for a reward, some of them still went ahead and smoked. The researchers discovered this with the help of functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, a kind of brain imaging technology. For their experiment, they looked at the brains of 44 smokers, paying specific attention to an area of the brain called the ventral striatum, where reward molecules are released and addiction is believed to be triggered. It is the area of the brain that is important for motivation and goal-directed behavior, functions that are highly relevant to addiction. All of the participants were nicotine-deprived, having not smoked a cigarette for at least 12 hours before the experiment. While they underwent brain scans, they played a card-guessing game with monetary prizes. They were also told at the beginning of the experiment that they'd have to wait two hours to smoke, which was then uh, the time when the experiment was due to end. About halfway through the experiment, they were told differently and given the opportunity to smoke during a 50-minute break that was 15 minutes away. When the time came to take the break, by this point they were probably itching for a cigarette that they thought they wouldn't get until later, they were told that for every five minutes they didn't smoke, they'd get one dollar, with the potential to collect as much as ten dollars. With that, the researchers were able to see who was able to resist a cigarette and who couldn't. The fMRI scans showed that participants who exhibited less activity in their ventral striatum at the prospect of earning money were the ones more likely to go ahead and smoke. Conversely, those whose brains showed more activity were able to abstain. The results suggest that it may be possible to identify individuals prospectively by measuring how their brains respond to rewards, an observation that has significant conceptual and clinical implications. For example, 
particular at-risk smokers could potentially be identified prior to a quit attempt and be provided with special interventions designed to increase their chances for success. With over 393,000 Americans dying each year from smoking, any intervention may be better than none at reducing the number of smokers. Smoking doesn't only kill people, but it also costs the United States over $193 billion. That is uh, that number is from 2004, due to health care expenditures and lost productivity, among other things. The findings of this study are certainly quite interesting and gives us some fascinating insights into why people continue to smoke in the face of such negative intervention. Uh, there simply aren't other things in their life that give them the same rewards as cigarette smoking. Uh, however, I don't know of the practical utility of this study. An fMRI scan is not something that is commonly available at your neighborhood imaging center uh, that your primary care physician could give you an order for to go get uh, a study done. fMRI scans are only done in highly advanced research centers where uh, state-of-the-art brain research is being done. And even if they were clinically available for common everyday medical practice, they would be prohibitively expensive, and it's unlikely insurance companies would cover it. Uh, I think really the practical utility of this is just that we know uh, some more about smokers and their behavior and what it may take to get them to quit. And I also think in an elegant way, it provides proof for uh, the observation that people really will not quit until they've decided on their own uh, that that's what they need to do. It's very difficult to incentivize a smoker to quit. Uh, typically, they're not going to really make the effort to quit until they've decided intrinsically uh, in and of them, in themselves that that's what they want to do and they have the inner intrinsic motivation to do so. Uh, and then and only then will they quit, regardless of who has told them to quit, how many times, how many different ways, uh, and how many different methods they try. Uh, nothing, I think, will help someone quit smoking, regardless of which method or what motivation, until they've made up their mind they want to stop. And at that point, it also won't matter what method they use to stop, but that's when they're most likely to become successful. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope that until we meet again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse privatehealthcareexchanges.com today.
The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit privatehealthcareexchanges.com today to browse